0: What's up, my fellow Hoop fans? This is Hope. Two of my favorite events are taking place this month, NCAA basketball, and for the first time ever, held in the winter, the Men's World Cup. Now, I admit to having my head in the sand as I prepare to gear up for soccer in Qatar, but college basketball starts just next week. So I figured it was the right time to check in with one of the best analysts of the game to get the inside scoop of the state of college basketball and the teams to watch and the stories that are likely to unfold. There is greatness in college basketball, perhaps more so than in previous years, of course, because of NIL and transfer portals. But the game also lost greatness in some of the most iconic coaches of all time that recently retired from the game. Fresh faces, young coaches, inexperience, and pressure of winning at the top programs will likely pan out to be an unpredictable season filled with upsets and Cinderella teams. Now, I always cheer for the underdog, going way back to when I used to fill out brackets with my pops. We chose teams with our hearts, not with our brains or by stats. So for me, this season's unpredictability makes the season even more entertaining. Now, you know Sean Farnham as an analyst for ESPN College Basketball. He is also a host for Sirius X Impact 12 Sean had a very memorable college playing career at UCLA, and he will share that experience with us today. And he became the youngest assistant coach in college basketball after graduation coaching at Pepperdine. Sean has been an analyst for over two decades. He brings the players' personal stories to light and shines the beauty, the individuality, and the talent to every athlete he covers. There is likely no one better to educate us about college basketball. So please welcome Sean Farnham. Sean, welcome to the show.
1: Uh, I'm excited to be part of this show. I mean, look—you are a legend. You have inspired <laughs> so many people uh, around the world uh, because of what you did. You transformed the goalkeeping position. I know this now, and it's <laughs> ironic. Okay, so there's a couple things here that that you don't know about me that I know about you. Uh oh. Okay. One is my daughter was inspired to become a goalkeeper because of you, uh, and she's on her journey now, and it's it's gone very well, and we're very excited about the path that Incredible. she's on. But how you- old is she? She's 15.
0: Okay. So went wow. to her
1: first went to her first domestic camp uh, last year in January with uh, the U.S. domestic team. Uh, so that was really a lot of fun for her to get that experience and that exposure. But you inspired her there. And then ironically, you roomed with my wife circa 1996 uh, oh, in Corvallis goodness. at the, <laughs> like the Olympic Development Programs program that was going on at that time in Corvallis. Her name was Sarah... Morgan, she went on to play at UCLA. Of course, she went on to go to Washington
0: out of here.
1: And so subsequently, here I am with the greatest of all time on your podcast.
0: We have come full circle. But 1996. Oh, my goodness. I was a troublemaker. I think I was probably piercing my belly button in in our dorm rooms. She had a
1: (laughs) a pierced belly button. So I'm going to blame that now forever (laughs) on you. And I'll tell everybody that Hope Solo pierced my wife. We uh, used ice
0: cubes, though. Okay, no there you infections. go. There you go. <laughs> Amazing. Well, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Um, so far on the show, Hope Solo Speaks, we've talked a lot about, of course, soccer. Um, we've talked a ton about football. My husband was a football player. Yep. Um, we've talked a bit about tennis, and we've talked a lot about politics and even really emotional and, and tough topics kind of sprinkled in between. Um, but we've only had one episode about basketball, and it was specifically West Coast basketball. I'm from Washington State, as you know, you know, C- Seattle basketball. I lived two hours from Gonzaga, so I really cheered on Gonzaga growing up. Um, so we've only had that, that one episode, and it was it was really focused on that West Coast basketball. And, and that's why I wanted you on here today, um, not just because you're a father of a talented goalkeeper, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do know that that is the toughest job on the planet, uh, the parent of a goalkeeper, um, very difficult. We'll get into that later, hopefully. Lose my mind all the
1: time, but yes, yes we, we will get yes, to that. You yes. can help me. <laughs>
0: um, but I want your expertise at the, at the you know the start of this year's NCAA basketball season. Yep. Um, before we go down that road, I was hoping that you could share with the listeners your personal bas- basketball journey and story.
1: Yeah, sure. I uh, played basketball at UCLA. I uh, was the uh, captain my senior year uh, back in 2000 um subsequently coached at Pepperdine University for a year which was a lot of fun to kind of see the game from that side of uh the the, the bench uh and then got into broadcasting and uh so the last 21 years I've worked my way through uh many many games different conferences different channels uh and ended up at ESPN uh, 13 seasons ago uh the game gives so much to us right but it also takes a lot from us when you're when you're an athlete and you're going through the process and to now be on the other side and be able to share and talk about the stories of today's student-athletes uh, and to dive into how they're being coached, the evolution of how we talk, how we treat, how we train, how we prepare our student-athletes uh, is so dramatically different uh, from when you were in college or when I was in college. Um, and it's, it's fun to see. And it's, it's, it keeps me close to the game in which I love uh, and allows me to uh, hopefully celebrate them more than anything all season long. Like that's the people have different approaches and I could be more controversial and I could probably be an angry broadcaster at times if I wanted to be. And maybe that would get me, you know, headlines on, uh, on Instagram or, or Twitter or whatever else the kids are on these days. Um, but I, I choose to kind of look at it as, as a really big positive of their journey. And every time I sit down to call a game, the one thing that goes through my mind is this could be the game that somebody shows their kids 20 years down the road. You know, their grandparents are going to be watching this and this might be their moment where they have a that, an uncharacteristic game. And that could mean somebody off the bench that gets four points and it's the only game they have four points or it could be a starter that goes for like 35. And this is the game that they want to remember. Uh, And so I kind of I kind of see myself as a person. That's my responsibility is to capture those moments as much as I possibly can.
0: I think that's incredible, especially because these are young men. You know, this is collegiate basketball. These aren't professionals. And I think really highlighting uh, their strengths and not necessarily their weaknesses or their mistakes is is really personable to the fans. And it, it, keeps, it keeps the fans and commentators, it keeps them accountable to, to seeing the goodness in the sport. And like yeah. you said, I think a lot of commentators are out there trying to say something that's outrageous just to get the hits on Twitter or to get the replay. So I think it's really incredible what you're doing. Um, but you did skip over much of your college career, and you're talking about how different it was for us when we played in college to, you know, the current game now. Um, so I did want to go back a little bit and talk yeah. about your time at UCLA and, and your experience there. Because, you know, for those of you who don't know out there, you, um, you were a walk-on at yeah. UCLA. You got two different scholarships. I'll let you tell the story. Um, but I think it's fascinating that you decided to walk on to a university when you could have received a scholarship almost anywhere.
1: Yeah, it was really uh, interesting the recruiting process. I always tell people Princeton beating UCLA in the opening round of the NCAA tournament is the only reason I was at UCLA uh, because had they won that game, they would not have made it out to the California State Championship. And again, the recruiting process back then, as you know, way different than now. We didn't have ESPN top one hundreds and videos and highlights being sent every single game, post game, and huddle and all these other creations. And so uh, I, I pretty much was assuming that I'd go to the University of Montana or the Air Force Academy. Those were like the two schools that I was kind of zeroed in on. I was like, I'm going to be a Division I basketball player. I'm going to either going to serve uh, through the Air Force and be part of the Air Force Academy or go play and, and be a Montana Grizzly. Uh, very different than the Bay Area being in, in uh, Montana. Um, but uh, all of a sudden, my senior year comes and we make it the state championship. And after the state championship game, I got about 35 scholarship offers. And my coach called me up and said, okay, listen, so here's the deal. You've got a ton of scholarship offers that just came through. People loved what you did tonight. And it was great. And I had a great game on, on the right stage. And we've all been there before where we have that moment. And you're like, wow, this was really significant, I think. And the next thing I know, um, he goes, or do you want to go to UCLA? And I said, wait, wait, hold on. What are you talking about? UCLA? You're t- this is 95. They won the national championship in Seattle. Uh, this is the only a year removed from that. Yeah, they lost in the first round. But what are you, what are you talking about UCLA? Well, listen, their coach has only seen you play one game. He's not going to offer you a scholarship based on one game for UCLA. And, but he, he's, he wants you to be part of the team. Uh, He's going to bring you down on an official visit. He's going to talk to you. He's going to tell you what his vision is. And then if you can do that, um, you'll, you'll earn yourself a scholarship. And so what ended up happening is I went down on my recruiting trip. I loved it. It was amazing. I committed, even though my parents told me not to. Uh, And so I totally committed on my recruiting trip and, I figured out like the, the best way for me to move forward has always been to work harder and to outwork as many people as I possibly can because I knew talent wise. I mean, I'm looking at guys that are in the NBA that are going to be in the NBA within like eight months after I arrived to campus. So I'm like looking around going, okay, I, I'm not like them. Like it's different. And so what I decided to do was I drove down in July and I slept on my uh, manager's floor. Uh, one of our managers, uh, I slept on his floor for a week, uh, made every single workout, paid for it all on my own dime, drove back up to Northern California, where I was from, got my workouts in there, drove back down, slept on the couch of Bob Myers, who's the general manager of the uh, Golden State Warriors now, who was my teammate, uh, and uh, did my workouts, never missed an early morning workout, was there on time, did everything that was responsible. And so when I came back down for the start of school, uh, Jim Herrick, the head coach, had walked up to me and said, hey, Sean, you need to come down to the office. So I come down the office. I'm like, oh, gosh, like, you know, what's going on? We just started our workouts two days ago. And he goes, uh, I want to let you know that my senior captains have come in and they've told me how you've never missed anything and you never complain. You just keep working. Um, and so I figured it would be easier for you to call your parents from here and tell them they're getting reimbursed all their money and that you're going to be on scholarship. And I just was like, lost my mind. I mean, it's UCLA basketball, you know, it's, it's, it's iconic. It's John Wooden. It's, it's yeah. So it was really interesting. And then as that process went along, Jim Herrick ended up getting fired. Steve Lavin came in, uh, as a head coach had different views of, of what I was going to be and what I was going to do. And, and then he kind of pulled me off a scholarship and, and I had a, then for a whole year, I didn't have a scholarship and and I was devastated. I thought about transferring. I thought about pulling the plug and going somewhere else. And I was like, you know what? I'm working my tail off. I've done everything right. I'm a good student. Like, why isn't this working for me? Um, but as I try to tell my kids, and I've got three of them, 17, 15, and 11, is, is those are the moments you can really grow the most from. Is by staying. And what I, I realized is I was trying to be the same player I was in, in high school, which was I could score, I rebound, and do all those things. But when you have Baron Davis, Earl Watson, Jason Capono, Matt Barnes, all these guys that played years and years in the NBA, you don't need Sean Farnham shooting the ball. In fact, you don't want Sean Farnham shooting the ball. Um, but there were things I could do that maybe were different. So I I, I said, you know what? I'm not worried about my shot anymore. I'm going to bulk up. And so I went from like 220 to about 245. Wow. And I became a screener. I became a bruiser. I became the guy that was just catch the ball, reverse it, go find somebody, lay my body on them, block them out. Like, anything I could do that nobody else on my team really wanted to do. And that's how I carved out the little niche that I had in becoming a starter for the final two years. I played in every NCAA tournament game we played. And I started uh, to being a captain and becoming a a starter for a majority of my senior season. Uh, And it was just an incredible ride. And what I learned from that hope was that you may have a vision for who you think you are, but you have to sometimes check that vision and look at the reality of the situation you're in and what is needed by those people that are around you. Because when we, when you're part of a team, it's not on your individual success. It's based on the collective group of what you can potentially accomplish. And, and although we didn't win a national championship, I was extremely proud that in my four years we went to three Sweet Sixteens and an Elite Eight. Um, and to have those kind of postseason runs, uh, to win a conference championship and then the Pac-10, Uh, it meant something. And it still means something to me today. And I'm grateful for that, that journey, because I think that journey has also helped and assisted me in television and understanding the story and the path that these kids are going through. It's never usually a straight line unless you're the GOAT. If you're the GOAT and the greatest to ever be in goal, then it's a straight, no, just kidding. I know it wasn't a straight straight line line for you either. My
0: friend, my friend, but you know, I was the best goal scorer in the state of Washington. I could have played anywhere, you know, on scholarship as a field player, and yet here I am, or here I was, the best goalkeeper in the world. And so you're right. Sometimes we don't know what our role is going to be um, or where we're best fit. Um, but you did the grunt work, and I think those type of players make the best teammates. The ones who are going to put in the work, do what is necessary for the team, um, even if if it's you know not your favorite position or your favorite role. You, you got to do it, you know and and that's what goalkeeping was for me. I didn't find a love for goalkeeping until later in my career. Um, I bucked against it for, yeah. for a very long time, but I still loved being the best. So I still was very competitive and wanted to, you know, out train everybody yeah. as, as you're saying you did yourself. So I, I understand the, the work ethic and um, it truly sounds like you were one of the best teammates and, and it sounds like an amazing college experience.
1: It it was. And and what it did was it helped me prepare for for life, you know, because, you know, marriage is hard. Marriage isn't easy. I've been married now to my wife for for 20, almost 21 years. And, you know, when you marry a soccer player, you guys are tough. You're competitive in everything. And so you're going to have some arguments. You're going to have some disagreements and things. And, you know, getting through those those times or the resiliency of that, I think a lot of that goes back for both my wife and I. Based on our, our competitive background and what we learned and what we took away from sport. And when you're a teammate and you talk about being a teammate and a teammate in life, like who are the people that you can count on? Like when you look over to your right and your left and you think, okay, I'm going to count on this person. I don't care what's going on peripheral. I don't care what other people think. Here's the person on my right that I, I know I can count on no matter what happens in my world. They're there. Who's on my left? And for me, my wife has always been that person on my right hand side. And we don't, she doesn't walk behind me. She doesn't walk in front of me. We walk in sync together. And that doesn't mean that sometimes in sync, we don't separate <laughs> sideways a little bit, come back. Um, but but that that toughness and that resiliency and that work rate, I think, has been a big part of my success personally. Uh, and then also professionally, Of you know, looking at my stats, if you look at my career stats at UCLA, no one's going, this guy should be a lead analyst at ESPN. <laughs> but here I am 13 years later in this seat. Uh, covering Final Fours, being on College Game Day from the Final Four the last four years, and and getting that to experience that ride, and it's been it's been incredible, and I attribute a lot of that to that time period at UCLA in which I learned from there.
0: And commentating and broadcasting, it's a ton of work. And I I think people understand it now, but we used to just look at it on TV and be like, oh, I could cover the game, I could do that. But it's a lot of research. You have to watch a lot of games. It's a lot of time away from the family because you're watching television games. Uh, It's a ton of work. Um, And you actually started in college. You worked for uh, Fox Sports West while you were still in college. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, so I I basically picked up the microphone one game my junior year. And I told the play-by-play guy, you have the easiest job in the world. And he's Bill McDonald, who's now the voice of the Los Angeles Lakers. And he goes, Oh, really? How would you do it? And I grabbed the mic and I did this whole open about Arizona State taking on UCLA. And it was the game that, that I was playing. And it was like two and a half hours before the game. So I'm throwing like half court hook shots, just screwing around, having fun. And uh, little did I know the microphone was open in the truck and the coordinating producer of Fox Sports West was in the truck. Comes down and goes, Who was that? And they're like, Oh, it was him. And so they called me over and like, Hey, would you, you want to do this? And they're like, we can't pay you because of NCAA rules at the time. Now I could have got paid, which would have been really a lot better. Um, But for two years, we did something called the Farnham Files. It was back when the X-Files was kind of big. And so they did an F instead of an X. And they, you know, the Farnham Files. And I, I did all sorts of things. And, you know, some of them were like where we eat on campus and where we hang out as a basketball team. I interviewed my coach and like, why am I not playing more? And one of the things that that did during that period of time, even though I didn't get paid for it, it made the camera seem like it was just my friend. Like, it's like you and I talking right now. Like, it was never something that I was like, oh my gosh, there could be hundreds of thousands, millions of people watching this. Nope. Never thought of that. I just thought like, oh yeah. And part of that is because, and you know this, when you're young and you're a college athlete, you feel like, I'm the man. I, I'm the woman. I can do whatever I want to do. Like I'm on top of the world. I'm in my best shape. I'm, I'm representing UCLA. So you kind of have like this invincibility kind of aura around you as you're going through it. And so I never really looked at it differently. So then when I got back into it after coaching for a year at Pepperdine, I was like, okay, yeah, I can do this. I I can, I can, I know, I know what I have to do. And so it's, it's all about preparation. It's all about knowing the stories, knowing the details. I can do this. And just, the work part has has evolved over time, as you said, when we call games like, for example, I just got my schedule and some of the games I'm calling. I think my first games, November 18th. I just sent to my producer literally a half hour ago, seven graphics over overlying themes of, that I want to discuss during those games uh, that are going to happen two, two and a half weeks from now. Um, but I want them to be out in front of it. And my prep work for those games started legitimately about a week and a half ago. Getting film from the coaches, talking to them, getting on the phone with players and going, okay, so I want to be as buttoned up as I possibly can. Because when you sit in that chair, people count on you to provide more information than what they can find right now on the the internet. And the internet and the evolution of how we consume our information has made a lot of people feel like they're experts when they're not necessarily experts.
0: Of course. So you're partly producer, it seems like as well. Maybe you should get a second paycheck.
1: Hey, if you can work with that, if you want to, t- you want to take me on, I'll be, you can be my agent. You can try to negotiate that. Uh, but you know, I think that's important. Collaboration is always important. Like when I'm working with a, with uh Sirius XM and doing their radio programs on 84 or the conference channels, I always want to make sure I talk to my producer and find out, what is it that you need from me? How can I help you be better? Like, do we need to get a guest? Who, what coach do I need to call to get them come on? And so a lot of times when I'm doing games and I'm working with a new producer the best way for them to understand what I'm going to demand is to show them what I've already done. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Like I'm a very demanding talent. I am. When I'm on air, I demand a lot out of my producers. I demand them to be buttoned up. I demand them to have the edits done. I demand that that has to be done because at the end of the day, that product that comes out on television, the fans at home don't go, Oh, that producer messed that up. They say I messed it up. And okay. so we have to be buttoned up together and so the only way to get a new producer who I've just started working with or I'm going to be working with to understand the commitment that I'm making to the broadcast and that I expect the same thing in return from them is to show them, hey, this is what I've already done, here's what I need, here's what we're doing, here's what and then it overwhelms them a little bit <laughs> but but what they realize is, okay I got to be buttoned up for this game. this guy's not mailing this broadcast in and I will never mail in a broadcast that I cover.
0: Seems like you're making everybody better around you, and they're doing the same, and that's what I hope my producers do for me here on Sirius. and they do. Andrew's a little shaky. Andrew's a little shaky. Come (laughs) on, he's listening, but you can't talk. You can't hear us. (laughs) No, um, but it's teamwork. You know, it's it's that it it just all goes back to life lessons that we learned on the field. You know, bringing teamwork into everything that we do. Um, But we talked a little bit about how you didn't get paid for your first job in college. Um, So I want to transition into the NIL. How how do you feel about the NIL? How do you feel about not getting paid when you were in college? And I really just want to know how it's affected change in in college basketball.
1: I I think NIL overall is a positive thing, Hope. I think that you obviously would have benefited a great deal from that. Um, You know, Kiki Rice just got uh, signed to Jumpman. Uh, She's a freshman basketball phenom at at UCLA Mm -hmm. this year. She's tremendous talent. Uh, Jumpman just signed her for the first NIL deal that they've ever made. Uh, for a college athlete. And I think that's awesome. And especially since it's a woman and we're promoting women athletics and we're not just talking about it because a lot of times that happens. Um, but I, I think that NIL overall is a positive because there is a net value and a net worth. And so often we are limited in where we can work, the time in which we can work because of our schedules with practices and things like that when you're going through it. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough to have a job in college. I was a valet at the Beverly Hills Hotel <laughs> Uh, wore wore the pink shirt, the pants. I can and, see
0: it.
1: And it was parking cars, but they would work around my practice schedule to allow me to get the hours I needed to be able to make money. But when we were in college, we couldn't work for a booster. So anybody that was associated with UCLA athletics, we couldn't work for. Now that's changed. And because of that, it allows these guys uh, and women to look out and say, okay, what are my interests? What paths do I maybe want to go down? And can I network now? Can I start that process now so that when when the music stops and I'm no longer playing, I know what I can go do. Uh, whether that means that it's seven years afterwards because they go play professionally in Europe, or they're in the NBA, or they're in the NFL, or they're just done when college is done, they're they're more adequately prepared to have success. And I think a lot of times at the universities, they never really prepared us for what happens when it stops. That's the hardest thing. I think, you know, all athletes want to be musicians, I think, at some point in time in their life. Like they want to be up on stage and hold a crowd in their hand, right? I
0: have never been musically inclined or talented. So that hasn't been my dream.
1: I haven't been either. You don't (laughs) want me singing on your podcast, trust me. But the thought process of like, wow, that's amazing amount of power. Most musicians and stuff look at athletes and go, man, I'd love to be on that stage at the World Cup, having to make a save to, to win it. You know, uh, to, to win a gold medal, to for, you know, be in the NCAA tournament, Super Bowls, all those type of things. Those become the focal point of what a lot of people dream and aspire to be part of. But what they don't talk about is, OK, when that stops, what do you do? Like, like, OK, now, like my identity, so much of an athlete, student athlete's identity comes from their sport, whether they want it. People want to say student athlete or not. They're athlete students. Their identity is through their sport. So, with that identity, with the social media outcomes as far as influencers go, esports, gaming online with Call of Duty, Modern Warfare Two that just came out, um, you know, all those those type of things, you have multiple avenues now where you can generate revenue for yourself, for your family, and I think what we've seen too, and for as much criticism as it gets, and it gets a lot of criticism, but who does it get criticism from? People that don't like change. People that are like, oh, well, this wasn't the way it was back in the day. Hey,
0: I was a little stubborn towards it Were as you? well. Yeah. Come on. You know, I'm all for the student athlete and I'm all for giving athletes opportunities and being able to make a dime off of their own name, image, and likeness. Of course, I wish I had that looking right. back. But I also think um, it's still a little bit of the purity when it came to sports for me. You know, I loved college sports I was a professional as a collegiate athlete so I played for the national team you know at right. 17 years old and I also would go back to my university and it was so just pure there was no competition for commercials competition for money <laughs> it was just okay, pure.
1: okay uh, love the game like, when you watch college football does it not look pure if you're watching on Saturday right now
0: it yeah, looks but, pure uh, I, I mean I it's I the same playing, thing but let's talk about the transfer portals then our players moving in and out? Does it, you know, who's really benefiting and who's hurting from this? And our players, well, you know what you see in is football, yeah, NIL. the transfer portals. it is, it is. Okay, so like,
1: so like, let's stay on NIL just for a second though, because I think that this year, I think the big thing for college basketball fans is we've often said, we lose our stars so quickly to the NBA, because you, it's not like football where you have to stay three years. You can leave after your mm-hmm. freshman year if you want to. Uh, but here we are entering this year with the Wooden Award winner coming back to Kentucky and Oscar Sheebway. We have Drew Timmy uh, and his, his masterful mustache coming back to uh, Spokane, Washington for Gonzaga. <laughs> Armando Baycott coming back from North Carolina. Trace Jackson Davis. And a lot of these guys have benefited financially from name, image, and likeness to the point where they make more money now in college than they would potentially on a G League two-way contract because maybe their game doesn't transition as smoothly mm-hmm. to that next level Uh, As we think, because look, if any of those guys could have been drafted in the lottery, they would have gone. They they weren't. They weren't going to be first round picks. They were going to be second round picks. And because of that, they're like, hey, you know what? College isn't a bad option. And because of that, college athletics actually benefits from it. The transfer portal, let's digress. (laughs) 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 I'm not a fan of the transfer portal at all. Uh, I I think that you have to have the sit out here. Um, Because right now what we're doing is we basically created free agency. free agency is professionalizing of collegiate athletics. And we've seen the trickle down even to the high school level now where kids are transferring and playing for four high schools. That's not the experience. That's not building the lasting relationships uh, that you build with your teammates and a sense of camaraderie and a sense of belonging. Uh, And we're losing that a little bit here in sports right now. And to the point where I think if you're at a lower division one college basketball team, like you kind of got to recruit like you're a junior college coach now. Like our goal is to go out and recruit high school kids because not a lot of high school kids are getting recruited because they're all trans. They're now recruiting out of this portal, which is non existent space that people just put their names into. And one of the things we don't talk about is that 40% of the kids that put their name in the portal this last year are still in the portal. That means no scholarship, that means no furthering of their education. They're just sitting in this empty vacuum waiting and hoping that someone's going to call them up and ask them to come play for them, which at this point in time is highly unlikely that it's going to happen. And so we need to highlight that as much as we highlight the fact that Remy Martin went to the transfer portal last year from ASU, transfers to Kansas and wins a national championship. Well, good for Remy Martin. It worked out really well for him, but it hasn't worked out for a lot of kids. And that's my concern, because when we talk about change, to me, change in society, change in diversity, change in education is still the best platform to elevate and lift somebody up. And when you lose that because somebody got in their ear and said, hey, you know what? I think you're better than that school and you can go somewhere else. And then nobody wants you. You can't go back because the place that you left, they've already filled your spot because you told them they were leaving. And I think that that's it. That's an issue right now when this transfer portal. And that's why if you sit out a year, it will lessen the numbers a little bit. It also helps further along the academic progress of the student athlete, which hopefully will get them closer to obtaining a degree should they not be able to go pro. And if they go pro, then great. They're making the money they want to make anyways. It's going to be life altering and changing for their family, hopefully. And that's where I think we've got to keep the best interest of the student athlete in mind. And is it—is it the best interest of the student athlete to consistently get up and move schools? The answer is no.
0: Well, I'm going to repeat that. That's a very troubling statistic that I have never heard that. But- 40% of everybody that enter, enters into the transfer portal just sits there and goes nowhere. Yeah, no college va- In college
1: basketball, I don't know how it is with other sports, but in college basketball, sports, that's, in college that's, basketball that's what the numbers are. And it is troubling. And, and that's why I think we need to continue to talk about that. And I think that we need to evaluate the process in which so many of these decisions are being made. Some of these decisions are being made because of NIL and collectives. And trying to make sure that they can get maximize and get more money. Some of these decisions are being made because they feel like they're better than the level that they're in. But who is advising them that they're better than that? I mean, who are the people you're listening to? And and look, there's con- I, I'm a firm believer in accountability. Accountability is a big word for me, Hope. And I, I think you have to be accountable. If you make this decision and it's not the right decision for you, well, then that's on you. That is on you. You're you're mm-hmm. you're a young man or woman, you're 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Who's in your pocket? Who's in your foxhole? that's looking out in your best interest. And are they really looking out in, their, in your best interest or are they looking out for potentially their best interest down the road? And I think that becomes a problem with a lot of these scenarios.
0: Yeah, of course. And you got to keep in mind, these are young men that we're referring to, you know, in NCAA basketball right now. And even when you're older in life, you know, you get bad advice everywhere you turn. Yep. It's not just about trusting somebody. It's about realizing that they're education educated in the game and the system and the coaches and the um, the style of play where a kid will fit in or not fit in what's best for the kid. And I think a lot of people just, they assume they understand, they assume they can do it. They act like an agent, they act like they're good advisors, but nobody really knows who to trust. And especially a young 17, 18 year old. That's and we different. want to
1: rush the process. Look at all these kids that are reclassifying, you know, like there's, there's been a, a, a rush to get to that next step, that next step, that next step. And you see people reclassifying and leaving high school early. Women's soccer this year, in particular, like people that have reclassified from the class of 2025, which is my daughter's class, going into 2024 so they can expedite this recruiting process. I'm like, you're missing so much growth opportunity. Um, you know, not just as far as, hey, I can get better trained if I go to Carolina than I would have with my club team. Yeah, that's, that's a fact. That's true. But what about the social development? What about the maturity? that needs to be developed over that period of time. When you elevate that and you thrust yourself forward, you skip steps. And when you skip steps, eventually it catches up to you. It may not catch up to you right away because the hype machine is gonna open up doors of opportunity, but it will catch up to you eventually down the road. And then you're gonna look back on the process and go, man, I didn't even have a senior prom. I didn't go to senior homecoming. Like, why was I in such a hurry to go work in the real world because now, I'm, from my perspective at least, I would go back and do UCLA exactly the same way, on and off scholarship, no extra, extra minutes. I would do it all over again in a heartbeat tomorrow because it was so much fun versus the stress and the pressure of what real, reality and life really exists.
0: Now, I do not regret missing any prom or homecoming when I was a very serious athlete growing up in in high school. I was still playing for ODP. I was traveling around yes. the world. I'm sure you know what it what it's like to have a, a youth soccer player. Yes. It's, uh, very demanding. But I can't say those are the things I regretted. No,
1: but, <laughs> but, but if you would have, if you would have, it, it's a difference if you're playing your sport going through the process normally, which is what you did. Just like when my daughter missed homecoming this two weeks ago because they're playing in Arizona. Okay, fine. That's, that's the way that it's got to be. Your team needs you to be there. But when you say, hey, I'm leaving high school early, I'm cutting short this portion of the journey to skip to get to the next journey, that's when you start to miss a lot of those things. And I think that we see that throughout sports, whether it's, it's young players leaving high school and going to overtime elite just because they want to make money right away. And, and I understand there's a financial need and a financial burden for some families that do take precedent from time to time. You know, you've got, to, you've got to help your family put food on the table, but yeah, I, that's understandable.
0: But even youth sports are being professionalized and there's a lot of money being made in youth sports. That's a whole different topic. Um, I don't understand the youth system when it comes to uh, basketball. I don't know the, how, how recruiting works, how they find kids in every neck of the woods. Um, it's a pay for know- place game.
1: Just a is lot really? like soccer, Just which is like soccer. I know you've been involved with the, the club level and in mm. some levels trying to eliminate the the, the play for play uh, the pay for play aspect of it. But when you look at the high, highest level of club teams here in Los Angeles, are charging about four thousand dollars a year to play club basketball, and you're really primarily only playing in the spring and the summer, and that, that's a lot of money. Now there's travel and there's things involved in all of that, but I always laugh at that. I'm like, dude, we're in LA. Guess where all the college coaches come? LA. You don't have to go to Omaha. Like, if I was in Omaha, Nebraska, yeah, I got to get out. I got I, I to gotta play against some other people, you know, but you're in Los Angeles. You're, being, you're in the West region of the United States. You're going to get seen by, by pretty much anybody you want to get seen. And we have to do a better job of demonetizing the bank accounts of the people that run these clubs. Um, and, and that goes for all sports, not just basketball, but soccer is essentially the same thing as you know. Um, and what it does is we start limiting the number of people that can stay on and play and really develop to become their best version of who they can be. Now, there are some scholarship programs in a lot of clubs, so I don't want to detract away from those. And often those are given to the most talented players regardless of financial need. But at the lower levels, when you're coming up and you're developing, uh, it's expensive. And and it is a burden, financial burden on a lot of families. And I think that from a sports perspective, we need to do a better job of keeping keeping the cost down, I started a club team that I coached.
0: There's amazing coaches out there who do try to keep the cost down, but I I think it's only going to increase over time. Um, we yep. have professionalized youth sports. We've seen it across almost every sport. Um, soccer is one of the worst. Um, I'm, I'm very familiar with the numbers involved when it comes to the pay-to-play system and the number of people that were alienating to keep away from the beautiful game, which yep. was supposed to be inviting everybody to the beautiful game. But I got to tell you, that really – fucking breaks my heart that that's happening in basketball. I didn't know that. I had no idea um, that youth basketball has become a pay-to-play system as well. So I
1: I, I coached a club team for seven years, and I only charge kids $500 a year. And the only reason, I I got the uniforms donated. I never took a cent. I didn't take one penny to coach this team. And I said, you know what? I want to open it up to as many kids as I possibly can. And your $500 pays for insurance and one tournament that we're going to be playing in. So each player that was on the team basically paid for one of our tournaments. And then the players' parents could stay wherever they wanted to. They didn't have to travel as a group and pay exorbitant uh, amounts of money to travel to the East Coast or what. And And I have three kids that I coached during that period of time that are all in the top 100 right now on ESPN's rankings.
0: Incredible. Uh, so that's incredible. Tremendously
1: talented kids that bought in, their parents bought in, they bought in and they benefited from it. And I think that that's the way we have to do it eventually. But you and I aren't going to be able to solve that issue because it's no, too much but money. There
0: are, like, you know, like you said, there's a lot of local heroes out there doing the right thing, yep. um, but it doesn't come from the top down, as we've seen. Um, okay, uh, Just real quick. How is college basketball? How is basketball in general? Is the sport declining in popularity? Is it r- rising? Is it plateauing?
1: I think our look, the metrics will tell you that we have an older audience. Um, and and that is a, a byproduct of how the NBA has become become younger, hipper, cooler. And college basketball is based on tradition. Well, innately, for tradition, you have to be essentially an alum of that university to really buy into the tradition. Like you can go there, but you want to be like an alum and you want to come back and cheer for your team. So it has regionalized college. Basketball a little bit. We have national brands without question. Still, those they still remain you know, the Kansas, the Dukes, the North Carolinas, the UCLA's, the Kentuckys. You know, Gonzaga has emerged as a national brand because of their consistency in which they've played with. Uh, there's there's others that I would throw in there that are that are at that level. Um, but I, I think that this this is going to be really interesting for me because of the the convergence of the transfer portal and NIL together. We now, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, how many guys returned to college that would have left. I think we might be at a point where we could start seeing ascension again, as far as popularity in the sport, because we're still going to have the best freshmen uh, that are going to be one and done kids um, that are going to, that are going to play in college for eight months and then they're going to get drafted and good for them. But we're also going to have some of these guys that are a little bit older, like a Marcus Sasser from Houston and all of a sudden have a program like Houston. That's maybe good enough to win a national championship this year that we haven't talked about. In a long time, which means nostalgic wise, we can go back to Clyde Drexler and Akeem Olajuwon and show that <laughs> that footage of them playing at Houston. Um, UCLA this year is, is, is a unique team because they don't have one transfer. They're the only team in Power Five Conference basketball to not have a single transfer. And yet they have a fifth year guard in Tiger Campbell, who's an excellent leader. Jaime Hawkes Jr., uh, whose sister, by the way, just started her freshman year at UCLA as well, came back after being injured most of last year. He's an elite level player. Uh, so the, there's stars and there's names and there's brands that this year, I think mm-hmm. we can attach ourselves to. And I think that's going to be, that's going to be key as we navigate the changing rosters, because as I will tell you, as an analyst, like I'm looking right now, I'm like, who's on what team? Like, <laughs> you know, that that's the biggest thing as we're starting the season. I'm like, OK, so many kids transferred. Do I have them all lined up correctly? And I'm going through all the preseason uh, magazines and things like that, that we that we get sent to us all the, the research department at ESPN that sends us. And I'm going, OK, wh- where are they? What are they doing? OK, how do they fit in that system? And I'm going back and I'm watching film and going, OK, now can I envision how they're going to play like Kendrick Davis, a really good transfer that went to Memphis this year? All right. How's he going to fit in Penny Hardaway's system? I know how he played last year, but how's he going to work in this? And I think it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. And I think hopefully that entry will bring people back to the shop. But I think the biggest thing always is this, how do we schedule? Like who's, what are we scheduling? Like, are we scheduling great games and are we spacing them out appropriately? So we always have some great games. Like college football does an amazing job of always having that big game on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And you're like, that's the can't miss game. College basketball is a little different. And I think that these conferences and these coaches are starting to figure it out, in particular in the non-conference, when you look at some of these schedules, they're gauntlets. is uh, starting their season on an aircraft carrier against Michigan State. Uh, and then they're playing Texas, and then they're playing Kentucky, and then they're playing Alabama, then they're playing Baylor. Well, those are all made-to-watch games. And what happens is when you're a coach and you're stable and you're not going to get fired and you have you know, confidence that you have established who you are and what your program looks like, then you can go oh, off and yeah, schedule those point. type of games. Um and I think that's where we're kind of getting right now. And it's a passing of the torch. There's no more Roy Williams. There's no more coach K. Um and, and some of the great Long Kruger, another great coaching legend, has uh, stepped away from our game. Jay Wright retired unexpectedly uh, towards the end of last at the end of last season. So who are the coaches that we're going to be promoting? Who are the players we're going to be promoting? I think there's some intrigue in that this year and I'm excited for it.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to see what coaches will be promoted. And, you know, you have these iconic coaches who recently retired. How does that change the landscape of, of March Madness and NCAA basketball? I mean, uh, they ultimately were some of the stars.
1: Right, they, it, it, because players come and go, but the coaches stay, right? It's And the NBA, usually the players stay and the coaches go, uh, okay. as we've seen with Steve Nash getting let go from the Brooklyn Nets because it was all his fault there. Um, but you look <laughs> at the college game, It's the coaches that stay and the players that go. And so a lot of times with your identity of the school begins to be the coach more than anything. And and I think that that's one of the things ESPN, I think, has done a really good job of is acknowledging um, some of the new coaches and and, and promoting those younger coaches, whether it's a Todd Golden taking over at Florida, who I think is a great hire there. Uh, John Shire, obviously, taking over for Coach K. We saw Hubert Davis and the job he did last year at North Carolina, taking the Tar Heels to a national championship. But we have also got to be more centric on the players, because what I think the younger demographic will tell you is they like stars. They want to watch stars. And we have even in a short window, and I go back to Trey Young when he played at Oklahoma a couple of years back. He went and played the PK-80, uh, which was the tournament honoring Phil Knight's 80th birthday that took place in Portland, Oregon. And relatively unknown. I mean, he was known. He was a good high school player. He was highly touted. But nobody expected him to do what he did. And then all of a sudden he's getting 20 points, 20 assists, and everyone's going, okay, i got to watch this guy. And we started putting up on the scorebug across the bottom line his stats, even in games that weren't on the channel that we were, we were covering because we wanted people to know he was the guy you needed to watch. And I think that we can do that. Media has the power to do that. We have the power to, to deconstruct a player and tear them down. Uh, we have the ability to build them up. And and I think in college athletics in particular right now, we need stars and we need to accentuate those stars and highlight their successes throughout the course of the year. And I also think the way we we convey our information. Kids on Instagram, they want the best dunk, the best shot, the best play, the best performance. Highlights themselves don't necessarily sell with younger audiences. But if we can make it more Instagram friendly and college content is getting in front of them more frequently, they'll go – this is pretty fun. I got to be part of this.
0: So ESPN's got to rewind the clock about 20 years. <laughs> yeah, turn back get on time. TikTok.
1: <laughs> yeah, get back on TikTok. TikTok, be real. I think that's one that the kids are on now. Snapchat, Instagram, all of them. I okay. try to avoid as many of them as I possibly can.
0: Oh, I highly doubt that. I bet you have an account for almost every single one. Just Twitter and Instagram. Just oh. Twitter and Instagram. Good man. Okay.
1: If I do a TikTok, <laughs> I usually do it with my daughter. We did that was Got one of it. things we did during pandemic. We did TikToks <laughs> to kind of pass the time. Um, but yeah, I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not much of a dancer. Hope. I'm I, Instagram. Yes. Twitter. I'm about to shut down. I mean, Twitter is just crumbling in front of our eyes. Um, but you don't love Instagram, to see I'm all right.
0: the hate every time no. you read a comment.
1: <laughs> no. Being told I need to drown myself in my toilet when I get back to my hotel room is not necessarily the thing I want to read when I get. Yeah, off. Yeah,
0: I don't even know if I know the password to my Twitter account.
1: No, yeah, that's probably a good thing. That's probably a good thing. For, I just it's it's becomes so, a it, it's it's problematic because of how people process information. Right? You can be told that you're great a thousand times, and that one person jabs and cuts you, and all of a sudden you feel that one a little bit more than than the masses. And I think for a lot of young kids, that's really really hard to digest and understand and take through and process. Uh, but for me, I can kind of process it a little bit, especially if I have a beverage right afterwards.
0: I hear you, man. But I got to tell you. 2011 world cup it was really when twitter was taken off and i saw my teammates on the bus on the way to a semifinal and a final game looking at all the twitter comments and then if they played poorly which i remember a particular teammate of mine got a red card didn't have the best game got kicked out of out of one of the quarterfinal matches i think um and she got on twitter and she was in shambles you know and she never got her confidence back up and from that day forward i told my teammates get off your fucking phones before the game on the bus at the stadium and for a couple hours afterwards like just take some time for yourself as a professional but even though i said that nobody listened everybody was on their phones the entire bus ride on the way to the game and i think it's very difficult for these young athletes to constantly constantly be on social media but it's too much can- noise
1: it's too much a lot noise. of noise.
0: It's a lot of yeah. noise. And we are the wise ones. So listen to us.
1: <laughs> yes. I'm just my daughter, my daughter and my son look at me like I'm old and I have no <laughs> idea what I'm talking about.
0: All right, Sean. So I, I'll move this forward and talk more basketball, your expertise. Yeah. Um, I've, to be quite honest, I, I've been studying a lot of soccer lately as we gear yep. up for the Men's World Cup. Um, So my head's been a little bit in the sand when it comes to NCAA basketball. So please tell me what are the main on-court storylines that you're following this season? <sighs>
1: I think that uh first of all can can North Carolina get to that one extra game that one extra step can they win the national championship with Armando Baycott back RJ Davis Caleb Love uh they've got a tremendous nucleus uh they had a season ago with them and Hubert Davis you know a lot of question marks on throughout even throughout the course of last season until about the middle of January like people were saying that like, Carolina's probably not going to make the tournament and they weren't playing like a tournament team then they got hot and they had every bit that look handling success is difficult Uh, It's difficult for young athletes. It's difficult for old athletes. Um, They had a lot of success at the end of last season. Can they, can they get that done again this year? So that's, that's number one. Number two for me would be Gonzaga. Uh, Mark Few has accomplished so much over the course of his coaching career. That one thing that he has not done is win a national championship. And this is a very unique team for him because it was a 48-hour window where this roster looked like it was maybe going to be highly questionable heading into the year, became great. When Julian Strother first said, hey, I'm coming back, Razier Bolton, and then all of a sudden Drew Timmy says, hey, I'm, I'm locked in and I'm ready to go. Uh, they've got some transfers. they got some other pieces. Point guard play is going to be really key for Gonzaga if they want to win a national championship this year. Uh, but I, I think that they have the makings of being able to do that. And then we get to the Blue Bloods. And I think this is the biggest thing. Like you, like I, I don't. I, I try to equate it to like you. You want your best programs to be at their best, right? So you've got the defending national champions of the Kansas Jayhawks. They they look like they're top ten ready again. They've lost huge components, but they have a lot of talent too back. Jalen Wilson is going to be really key for him. DeJuan Harris is an excellent point guard. But then it's Duke, UCLA, and Kentucky, and I, I think all three of those teams have visions of winning a title. Now the way that they'll do it will be completely different. You have Kentucky that has Oscar way back, the defending Wooden Award winner, Jacob Toppin. They've got a lot of good freshmen to surround around them. You've got UCLA that has no transfers, a lot of experience in the upperclassmen, but they have two freshmen and one in Adem Bona, who I think that, although Amari Bailey is the kid from Sierra Canyon, the, the highlight athlete, Adem Bona is the one to me that I think is going to have the biggest impact on the team. He's six foot ten, he can really run rim to rim, he's very talented. And then there's the Duke Blue Devils, who are gonna try to do it with freshmen. And you don't really see that happen too often. 2012, Kentucky won a national championship with freshmen. 2015, Duke won a national championship with a, a roster primarily of freshmen, but it hasn't happened since then. So can John Shire, this young coach, replacing Coach K in his first season, get this extremely talented group of freshmen to come together, live up to the expectation, live up to the hype, understand the pressure that's going to be on them, understand the criticism that will be on them when they don't play well, because there will be games in particular in November where this team does not play well, but can they kind of be that Carolina team from a year ago? And that's sacrilegious for me to say about a Duke team, but can they be that, that North Carolina team where all of a sudden at the end of the year, they come together, they're playing their best basketball, they understand what is expected and they can excel. And I think that's going to be really fun to watch those brands try to compete for a national championship. Uh, And then, as I mentioned, teams like Houston, uh, Creighton, uh, you know, non-traditional, like even Arkansas, who had a great run last year in the tournament with Eric Musselman, a really young team this year. uh, Can can they grow as the season goes on? But those teams in particular, Houston is one that I think, again, is good enough to win a national championship this year. And they sit in that like eight teams that I think can actually win it. Houston's in that mix uh, based on Marcus Sasser, uh, and his play, his play, uh, Jamal Sheed is, is also just a tremendous talented player that has a wealth of experience and Kellen Sampson just gets them to play hard. I mean, they they compete. There's not a possession that's going to be easy for them, uh, for an opponent in any situation. And, and I think that that's one of the things that when you look at the makeup of a national champion, you've got to be able to defend. And as much as scoring is important, like if you're disruptive and if you can knock your opponent out of their rhythm and flow, the advantage shifts to you. And I think Houston's an ideal program that can get that done.
0: Well, I might be cheering for Houston then because I love a defensive team. It cannot be overlooked. I love a hardworking defensive team on the court. Yeah. And I think I've watched basketball in a really boring way because I actually do watch <laughs> like the team defense and how they move and how they shift as opposed to watching the offense. I guess that's the goalkeeper. Wait, I mean.
1: are, are you saying that the goalkeeper in you comes out even when you're watching basketball? I mean, that's to me. It's a
0: it's a free-flowing sport, right? I mean, yeah. the movements, the shifting of, de- of players, yeah, the team defense, the running the, the court, getting back. Yeah, all of it. Yes. I guess I'm just a nerd when it comes to goalkeeping and defending in every sport. <laughs>
1: I love it. I love it. And you'll love them. I think, I think they're going to be really okay, good. Houston's going to be my
0: team. I can't believe it. I don't usually cheer for Texas teams.
1: Go okay. with the Houston Cougars this year. It <laughs> won't be a bad, it will not be a bad bet for you if you love defense.
0: I've always loved college basketball because there seems to be so many Cinderella teams or upsets and underdogs, but actually when you look at sports that can happen in every single sport, right? Yep. It's hard to predict, but it seems to happen more in college basketball. Why is that?
1: Well, I I think a lot of times style of play um, in the NCAA tournament. Look, I lost in the first round my junior year to Detroit Mercy, uh, and we had seven NBA players on our roster. There's no way that should have happened. But as as we see, teams will overlook opponents. Like last year, St. Peter's had this amazing run in the NCAA tournament. They knocked off Kentucky. If Kentucky played St. Peter's 10 times, they they should win all 10, but they're going to definitely win nine of them. But as as they show, failed to show up. They did not shoot the ball well. St. Peter shot the ball really well, and all of a sudden, you that wave starts to come over the top of you of like, oh my gosh, this this wasn't supposed to be like this. And you start to feel that discomfort as a player, and you start to sense like things aren't going right. How come things aren't going right? And if you start getting in that mindset, usually what happens is it it downward spirals more. It doesn't get better. And uh, college basketball just can do that because a lot of times, too, with these teams is at the highest level levels, we see a lot of freshman-laden teams, where at some of the lower-level uh, conferences, you see teams that have been together for four years, and that they, they know exactly where the other guy's going to be before the other guy even knows that he's going to be there. And that synergy and that chemistry and that cohesiveness in a one-game format can show up. You know, if, if we're playing in the NCAA tournament and we start playing it like the NBA does their postseason, well, you're going to rarely have upsets. Your, your your best teams are going to win the best out of five, the best out of seven type series. But in, in college basketball, it is, you know, 68 teams, one night, one game, what happens? And we see the magical moments happen like, you know, we've never thought we'd see a number one seed lose overall. We did when when Virginia lost to UMBC. And I remember being on ESPN that night and they said, what, is it, what comes to mind? I said, "This. what comes to mind as I look at this is the miracle on ice. Uh, Buster Douglas knocking out Iron Mike Tyson, you know, these the things that we thought were so improbable that it couldn't, it would never happen. And yet they happen. And that's why reality television, like it, reality television is not American idol, the bachelor, the bachelorette or any of those shows. Yeah. They've labeled reality television, but those are scripted television programs. Mm-hmm. The best reality and the only true reality is sport. And that is why regardless of pandemic regardless of changing political climates and all these other things that we've got going on that sports indoors. And when we go to matches and we go to games, nobody sits in an arena and goes, okay, so what's your political affiliation? Oh, sorry. I can't (laughs) sit here. No, you sit down and you go like, this is we're, we're in this together. You're, you know, You're a Steelers fan. I'm a Steelers fan. I'm a Niners fan. You're a Niners fan. Let's go Seahawks and all this, you know, whatever. And you, 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 the 12th man, and you want to just root for your team. And it's that moment of break from everything else that's going in the world. And I think that that's still where sports is. And I think that college basketball in its essence provides us the opportunity where on any given night, we can see that upset. We can see that stunner that captivates us. And hopefully you saw the whole game not just the highlights on Sports Center after you heard about it. Um, But I I think that's what makes college athletics in particular so great. Uh, And in in basketball, with the number of games that we have over the course of the year, there's always going to be some massive upsets in November and December, Um, whether it's teams just, you know, feeling a little bit of the dog days, looking forward to like a holiday break, uh, and then getting caught right beforehand by some team that they shouldn't. That happens every single year.
0: All right. So I was looking at the, uh, the top 10 teams. There's only yep. two West Coast teams. There's UCLA, obviously, and, Gonz- on, and Gonzaga. Sorry, the Zags. Um, what's up with West Coast basketball? How will the how do we build the program at University of Washington, a very historic program? And how do we keep the players in Seattle to stay in Seattle?
1: Well, there lies a big part of what's wrong with West Coast basketball. Yes. um look when um washington's rolling and it has so many great AU programs in that area seattle rotary friends of hoops a uh, tremendous amount of talent um when things are going well there uh, it strengthens it strengthens the whole conference i think a couple of things that, that look good one is arizona under tommy lloyd had a really good first year last year uh looked like they could potentially maybe be a title team they got upset in the NCAA tournament but That program stabilized and looks like it's back to being relevant. I think Dana Altman and the job he's done at Oregon has been really solid as well. Uh, The problem for the West Coast is the depth, the lack of depth that we see. You know, teams like Washington historically were in the NCAA tournament like every year. Uh, I mean, and that's not, you you can go back and I'm sure that your time there and then Lorenzo Romar and the amount of talent that he brought in up there, they had, they were, they were producing tournament teams almost every year. And if they weren't in it, they were just on the cusp out of it. Uh, Oregon had had been doing that uh, under Ernie Kent and then Dana Altman has accelerated that to the next level. The Bay Area schools have dropped off massively. Cal has really struggled. Stanford has lost its home environment. That was one of the best that we ever had in in, in the Pac-12, Pac-10 Um, and that, that kind of has derailed things a little bit there that they haven't been able to find their way back into the NCAA tournament, um, despite having some good talent. So when the depth of the conference isn't great, all of a sudden nationally people go, well, that's not a good conference. That's why they're winning. And so you start having the naysayers go against it. Uh, for Gonzaga, this has long been an issue, uh, for why they can't win a national championship, even though they played in two national titles since 2017. I'm like, that's pretty good. Um, but, you know, they go, well, the depth of the conference. Well, St. Mary's is a really good program. They're really good. They make, they've make they made 13 straight postseasons. BYU has been really good as well. San Francisco made it into the NCAA tournament last year. So depth is actually improving in the West Coast Conference for Gonzaga. The Pac-12 um, has had some issues with depth, and it looks like it's going to have issues with depth again this year. Uh, and I think subsequently you might see some coaching, coaching changes coming across the conference um, because of – the lack of depth and where it needs to be as we emerge into the changing landscape, geography-wise, of USC, UCLA leaving, uh, going to the Big Ten, uh, Oklahoma and Texas leaving the Big Twelve and going to the SEC, the Big Twelve welcoming in four teams: Houston, Cincinnati, UCF, and BYU. And all these things are changing, and you're like, well, what's the conference going to look at look, look like when they're not there? And you know, it doesn't change anything for Oregon in the Pac-12. It doesn't change anything really for Arizona with UCLA and USC leading, But if you don't have anybody else besides those two that are competing consistently at a national championship or a top 25 level, well, then you have some issues. And I think that would be my, that would be my problem with West coast. And some of this goes hope to media exposure, right? Television rights have been long been an issue for the, the conference of champions, that you and I were both part of um, the distribution of the PAC 12 network. It's, it's, I mean, it's easier for me to find the Big Ten Network and the SEC Network. I cannot Network.
0: find anything for the life of me. <laughs> yes.
1: Okay, you're not going to. Um, so how that gets distributed in the new media rights deal that George Kleofkoff, the new commissioner of the Pac-12, is trying to, to trying to negotiate at this time, I think is going to be really key because for a long time, we've seen kids go West, East. We don't see the same return of kids going from the East to the West Coast. And I think that becomes a challenge because then what ends up happening is you have you see these rosters where they're hoarding talent. And the SEC, where they've made a huge commitment to all of their athletic departments and said, hey, we're going to win. We're not going to apologize for winning. We're going to win. Alabama women's soccer right now is number two in the country. Like Alabama, like it's not just football. They're they're committing to the salaries. You know, the USC's head coach in women's soccer left and took the Georgia head coaching job this past year. Why? Because financially better supported program. So we have to do a better job in the West region of being committed to wanting to see college athletics thrive and not just at the football or, or men's basketball level, but at all levels. And part of that, again, comes to distribution. Um, part of that is that in the West region, the weather's really good. We have opportunities to go do other things, you know, especially here in LA, like, oh, I could sit in the 405 freeway for an hour and go to UCLA and basketball game. Or I can go have a nice dinner at this restaurant right up the street on Ventura Boulevard, come back and watch the game on television. Eh, that one sounds better. You know, so I think people have that kind of, take it or leave it mentality where in a lot of cases outside of the Pac 12 footprint, you see this die hard fandom um, that is next level, whether it's the whiteout at Penn State uh, that they just had for football, which was, I mean, unbelievable scene. You watch if you walk by the television and you see it, you're like, that's somewhere where I want to go watch a football game because that looks like a lot of fun. Where in some of the Pac 12 venues right now, we're not seeing that same level of excitement.
0: You know, maybe it all started when we lost the supersonics in Seattle.
1: Yeah, I think, you Maybe know what, went, <laughs> why have you not brought it to the NBA back? You should totally be You know the,
0: what, goodness.
1: We're going to put it all on you. I know Brent Berry. <laughs> Maybe I'll buy I, a women's
0: professional with. soccer team first, perhaps. Okay,
1: <laughs> do that, do that. And then start an academy <laughs> team underneath it so that the pay-for-play scheme goes away like the MLS has done with their boys' academy stuff, because that that seems to be working pretty much better in keeping uh, better diversity, more inclusiveness, uh, and better talent, homegrown talent here in the United States. Thriving at that next level, but that well, just means, that
0: should be the goal, right?
1: <laughs> yes, I, I want, I want to work on that. I'm, I'm, I'm focused on trying to get that one done too, by the way.
0: Well, we just transitioned into soccer. You know, I can't wait to sit back this winter. I can't believe I'm saying this and watch two of my favorite tournaments. So the NCAA, you know, college basketball, of course, going into March for March Madness, but also the World Cup because the men's World Cup is a winner tournament this year for the first time ever. So we're. I, I'm going to be. I'm going to be. You know, in front of the television, 24 um, seven. And I'm assuming your family is going to be as well. Are you, are, is your family going to be watching the World Cup together?
1: Of course. Like I. Well, I probably will not be because I'll be on the road traveling. But I know that they will be uh, watching. I mean, we watch everything from uh, the U17 World Cup to the U20 World Cup. Uh, wow. Uh, all the way. All the way up. So we're kind of. We're kind of silly like that. We've been watching it on all the channels <laughs> over the course of the last couple of months. Um, but it's been. It, it, it's such a beautiful sport, and it's one of those things. Hope that I never understood. Um, even when I first started dating my wife, like the first game I went to, uh, she had a, she was out in front of the last line of the defense, which, as you know, is going to bring a flag up that says offsides. And they go, "It's offsides." And I looked at her father, and I said, <laughs> "They didn't hike the ball. What do you mean offsides?" And he goes, "Sit down." And he says, "Sound." He goes, "Let me start explaining to you the rules of this sport, kid." And oh, I was like, goodness. "Oh, okay." So I started goodness. learning the rules of the game, and then it wasn't really until my daughter took it took it to her passion that I started truly appreciating the beauty that is soccer. And I think that I, my hope is that we continue to see not just these big tournaments on those big big stages with the big channels, uh, whether it be ESPN or Fox. That's obviously going to be doing the World Cup this year, uh, but that that we see that exposure coming year round. And I know the NWSL. Uh, championship game was viewed by the highest rated audience uh, that it's ever had. It's almost a million people tuned in to watch the NWSL championship game. That is great. It is great growth. And we need to continue to push forth that growth uh, to expose the game because the demographics of our country are changing and the, the popularity of this sport is growing. And you look at the numbers of kids that are playing at the youth level all the way through, there is a retention that is extremely high. And those, they, they want to watch their sport that they love and that they play. And I think that that's something that I look forward to uh, hopefully seeing continue to
0: grow. Yeah, it's remained being the fastest growing sport in the younger demographics and generations. And we could have predicted this 20 years ago because we saw it at that time. So and here we are, it's exploding all around the world, yes. uh, not just the men's game, but the women's game as well. So I do want to know what it's like to be the parent of a goalkeeper. I know what my mom always says. She always said it was the toughest position in the entire stadium being the parent of a goalkeeper. And she always explained it to me like this. You know, you want to showcase your daughter's talent, how great she is in the goal, and you want her to make these game-winning saves. You know, and and do her thing on the field. But at the same time, you're supposed to be rooting for your team to go the other way, right? Right. So it's like this. It's this struggle. It's this back and forth struggle for a parent. That's what she always told me.
1: What I have found is that when I videotape, I'm usually quieter, uh, which is good. Um, otherwise, I I can be a little loud at times. Um, but <laughs> you know, it, it's funny because as you know a forward can or striker can shoot the ball six times and spray it all around the, the net, not in the net, but all the way around it. And everybody goes <laughs>
0: great shot, great shot.
1: And that's good. Yeah. We put in some yeah. pressure on him. That's
0: good. Nice. Try. A, a, goal keep,
1: a goalkeeper makes one mistake and it's the air just gets let out of the, 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 the balloon, right? Like, you know, it's like, Oh, deflating. We lost, you know? Oh my gosh. Um, so that, it, it takes a certain mindset, I think, and you would obviously know that a lot better. But what I've tried to better understand as my daughter has gone through this process has been like how she processes those moments, um, how she sees those moments, and how I can better support her after those moments, whether they're great or whether they're bad. You know, whether she makes a mistake and lets one in, and that she normally would would not. And you go, okay, so how can I support you better in those moments? And as, as a parent, I think that's the evolution process of it. Um, But I mean, PKs sick to my stomach immediately. Anytime, (laughs) anytime there's a foul in the box, I'm like, why, why are we doing this now? Um, You know, you get that pit in your stomach, uh, you know, a, a ball that gets crossed in, uh, from a corner that's bouncing around right at the top of the 18 <laughs> and everybody's jumbled up inside and uh, she's screaming and like trying to direct and also be positioned and shot Calm ready enough this whole time. to
0: make the save. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a like, very humbling position is what I always say, let me ask you, can I ask you a question on your podcast? Yeah, of course. Of course.
1: Okay. So w- your feet were electric. Like I think when you think, when I think of your greatness, I think your, your footwork, your positioning, your foot speed made you different. And a lot of that obviously comes from your background of playing in the field um, and, and for so long being, being part of that. But when you worked on your positioning and you thought about being in that moment of that crazy everything going around you, World Cup, 150, 100,000 fans in the stands, global audience, millions of people watching all the way around. Was it your footwork that, that allowed you to thrive to that next level? That that separated you because I have not, and this is no disrespect to any of our goalkeepers that we have currently. Um, There's nobody that does it like you did it. Period. And and I challenge anybody that's listening to this: goes, oh, he's just saying that because he's on her podcast. Go pull up, go pull up those highlights and look at that. But what was it about your footwork that allowed you to be so elite?
0: I appreciate that. I'll take this opportunity. Um, First off, the highlights on the internet man, I wish I had all my training footage because that's really where you can pick apart um, how an athlete moves, their change of direction, their speed, how smooth they are with uh, with their foot, footwork. Um, but for me, uh, it made things look easy. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the most important part of the job. You know, I had plenty of goalkeeping teammates who could make the game-winning save. You know, they're powerful, they're athletic, um, they'll make that save, but it's not clean, um, and perhaps they're letting in the smaller goals because their footwork isn't right or their positioning is off. So for me, making it look easy was kind of a detriment to me at times. Um, but I, my footwork, my lateral quickness, is what really allowed me to make those saves from, you know, from side to side, yeah, all across the goal. It was really truly my footwork, and I see a lot of goalkeepers these days focus more on making that game-winning save, taking that that big pushover step and then throwing their body, um, without getting that footwork in first to make it look smoother. Um, I see a lot of goalkeepers focus on, like I said, the power, but also their hands a lot. Half the time, you don't even catch the ball anymore. Yeah. Um, you look at the men's game, people aren't catching the ball. I mean, I did have soft hands, but that wasn't the point the the point was that my feet got me there yeah. and it's overlooked so much in, in goalkeeping training. Um, we focus a lot just on our hands and, our hand speed and our, uh, hand coordination, but it really is all in the footwork. It truly is. And you can't be slow. You gotta be fast. Yeah. I'm sorry. Just because you're not running around the field, you gotta be fast. That's what makes some of the best goalkeepers. And I also think the aerial game, especially in the women's game is huge. And that was some of the funnest moments for me is coming out strong and a pack of players and being able to take the ball down in a crowd. Yeah. And again, that's, that's a huge part of the women's game is being able to control that 18-yard box anytime the ball comes in. Um, the last thing I'm going to say is about the mindset. The mindset that you talked about. For me, my mindset was anytime I got scored on, I truly believed I, I could have made the save. Yeah. I broke down the video. I looked at the footage. If I did a little something different, if I was two inches to the left, if I took a half step here or there, um, I could have made the save. And I wouldn't say I beat myself up over it, at all but i learned from every single goal and your daughter is you said 15
1: 15 yeah
0: you only get better with age when it comes to goalkeeping that's the beauty of it and you have more appreciation for the intricacies in goalkeeping and you learn so much more and you learn about your decision making and your your spacing i think one of the hardest things is coming off the line to get those through balls and you have to know how fast you are how fast the forward is how high your back line is so a lot of it comes with reading the game as well which you get better over time. So, tell me more about your daughter. I want to know. Um, I hear she's getting some great offers lately.
1: Yeah. So she, uh, it's been really, it's been really fun to go through. Whether it was the US uh, 15 camp last year uh, and get that experience down in Chula Vista, and you know, get there for a week. Um, you know, the process is is different. The the US system is is a unique system to try to go through and navigate. Uh, but she's been through that. Uh, she's she's going to go over to England and train in January with a professional team over there. Uh, for two weeks. Uh, So very excited for her to learn their style of teaching and their style of coaching. Um, So she's, she's been very fortunate, I think, to have the right people around her. She trains a lot with the boys um, and she trains a lot with like uh, the boys Academy keepers uh, with her private coach. Uh, She's the only girl there. And I love that aspect of it. And she loves that aspect of it. Because the speed is different of the shots, the angles are a little bit different. And I think it's really helped her excel. Um, You know, when you're six feet tall at 15, it's a challenge, uh, you know, because you're like, okay, well, like, how is my body and my body moving in the right direction? We're going in fluidity. Um, but it's been, it's been fun for me to watch to the point where like I have to tell her to stop working out her mentalities as such. Like she came back from a tournament. I wonder where
0: she got that.
1: Yeah, probably from both my wife and I, actually. But we, we went to a tournament in uh, the Surf Cup, which I'm sure you played in, a uh, legendary tournament in San Diego. And uh, she came back from that and wasn't as happy as she wanted to be uh, with the way that the weekend went for the team. And then some things individually beat yourself up over a goal that was led in here or there. So what does she do? She she comes home, she puts on her shoes, and she ran 12 miles. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, And then took, got to the place where she ran gets the ball out and he's like working on her footwork against, against the wall, just working on her, her touch off the wall. And I was like, you're nuts. And she goes, no, I'm driven. And I just want to, I, I want to get to where I her. Be.
0: I got the chills from your 15 year old daughter. That's incredible.
1: So she's different. She's wired differently. And that's, and that's the part that I think that we, we have to, we, as her parents embrace um, because she, we let her direct where she's doing and what she's going. It's not, it's not my wife it's, you know, it's not my journey. It's her journey. Um, and June 15th, will this year, she'll start her recruiting process officially, um, between now and then you just get those those silly things of fill out your questionnaire and here's our ID camps. We'll talk to you on June 15th. Um, but NCAA rules being what they are now, they they have to wait until they get to that point in time. Um, so I think it's really going to be, uh, it's a really fun journey. Um, and it's one that we hope there's, I know there's a 16 camp that's going to come up in January. We're hopeful uh, that she'll have the opportunity to go back to that camp and have another crack at it. Um and uh you know it's it's been fun. She's got interest from uh, a, a national team outside of the United States um because of some lineage in our family uh, that she might be exploring. So it's and it's what been,
0: lineage is that? Uh
1: I cannot disclose, You cannot. It I'm gonna look
0: off. up your lineage. Come on. Well, it's- not it's not mine,
1: it's my wife, so you're not gonna find it. So. Oh,
0: I'll find it. I'll find it. There you go.
1: <laughs> another well, time um, not for air I will definitely I wish her it.
0: all the best yes. I, I, it's it is exciting and I think that's incredible that she went out there and ran 12 miles I always say I don't care who you are goalkeeper should be the fittest on the team and I really believe that it's a mindset it's that quickness so if you're doing a quickness a t-drill if you're doing cones it's you know, turning back and forth. So you need you need to be one of the quickest on the team, but also getting out those eight hundreds and those four hundreds and those miles. Oh, they're awful! I look at her they're run awful. and I'm like,
1: "What are you doing?" She you signed up the... for cross country for no apparent reason. Hope.
0: Oh well, she's a masochist, and that's why I'm like, "Why would you want
1: to <laughs> sign up for?" Who
0: signs up for cross country? Nobody. Nobody that's says, okay. "Hey, I want to run
1: hills for like." there's a goalkeeper goes. I want to run hills for three, you know, three miles.
0: Is she working on her her? quickness yes. as well as her longest yes.
1: she runs 100 and 200 in track and then she
0: oh my goodness she's an all-around athlete it sounds like
1: so we'll see well she's good I, I, i'm happy awesome. for her this is her journey though
0: very cool well soccer dad yes and parent of a goalkeeper thank you so much for being on the show today um it's been that an works. honor to have you and it's been like i said very educational but also very entertaining for me so a lot of fun uh, I, I appreciate it for what you do and i hope you have a great college basketball season
1: thanks so much hope
0: Hope Sola Sphinx is part of the Sirius XM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts. Sirius XM Podcasts.